Thanks for stopping by. I'm Corey Edwards, writer, director, comedian, action figure collector sometimes. Um, Welcome. Welcome to the little sit down. Uh, Before we get to our guest, uh, thanks for continuing to listen to this show and whatever it will continue to be. Um, Maybe the room sounds a little different right now because I'm traveling. I am traveling uh, on a project, working on uh, something that is an adaptation of a literary work uh, to the screen, and that's something we're going to be talking about today on the show with my guest, uh, but it's also something that I've done a little bit of before, um, but uh, yeah, uh, just kind of living in another place right now, but shout out to the people in the airport that are literally walking through the airport wrapped in a blanket with a travel pillow around their neck. Didn't bother to pack any of it up, just just wrapped in the blanket and the travel pillow and the noise cancellation headphones and the sleep mask, all still on. Yeah, you look like an astronaut from another planet. I don't know, you know, it's, and, and, and chances are you're getting on a two to three hour flight. So, you know what? Relax. Uh, just, just get on the plane and maybe just put your head back and close your eyes. Um, you're, not, you're, you're not going to somewhere uh, in uh, deepest Asia or Africa on this flight. You're you're going to Denver. Um, but anyway, I, I did the airport thing and now I'm traveling and uh, working with some other uh, fine writers and artists. And uh, it's, uh, it's always fun to adapt something, but it's also a challenge. Adaptation is not, it's not direct translation. And when people say, oh, the book is always better than the movie, or I prefer the book over the movie, or I prefer the movie over the book, it's, it's, that's really not even the right question to ask if the book is better than the movie. The book is different than the movie. Both of them are very, very different things. It's like when you do a cover tune of a song you love, and then you do it with different instruments and a different voice. They are two different things. One may not be better than the other, you can prefer one over the other, um, but inevitably, if you're going to adapt uh, a stage play or a book into a movie, or you might adapt a book into a TV series, or you might adapt a movie into a TV series, all of those are different formats. So they're all going to require different things. They have different requirements. They have different uh, toolboxes that you need to open up to even tell the story, to even entertain the audience. So yeah, a book is very different. You get a lot of internal monologues of the characters. You get a lot of exposition. You get to float in and out of different points of view. And in a movie, it gets real specific to seeing and hearing and going with only a couple of different points of view. And and also you've got about 90 minutes, although movies are getting longer. I I know some of you are complaining about that. I am too. I, I don't think, you know, if you can't tell the story in under two hours, maybe make a Maybe make an episodic series or maybe write a book. Uh, Maybe movies aren't for you. And now I know I'm talking to people that like make awesome, amazing movies, but I just don't think you need a three-hour movie. If it's a three-hour movie, maybe, yeah, maybe it's two movies, you know? Anyway, that's another topic. But, But adapting a book to a movie, you have so much material that you've got to boil down. And movies are kind of like, I don't know, they're just... 
They're the cleanest, shortest, clearest path to a story. It's like you got to take a book and put it down through a funnel till you've got just like little eyedropper drips coming out of like what the essence of that book was. And it's a different thing. And it's, you know, so, so go enjoy the book and then go enjoy the movie and enjoy them as two different things. That's, that's kind of how I look at it. And even when uh, somebody takes an old movie and they reboot it, I don't, uh, I don't begrudge the reboot. Some people hate the reboot. But, you know, um, we've been doing it for a long, long time. It's, you're just kind of retelling stories and retelling. You might take a movie and say, you know, that movie was a product of its time. And now we want to tell it for this time in this culture with these actors. And it becomes a different kind of movie. You know, A Star is Born that just came out with... Um, um, I don't know that she went by Lady Gaga, but you know, old Bradley Cooper, old Rocket Raccoon, old Rocket Raccoon. <laughs> I bet he hates that. Uh, he, uh, he directed A Star is Born and you know, people are like, well, I prefer the original. Like, well, what do you mean? Because there were like at least two of them. There's the Barbara Streisand one. And then we go way, way back to Judy Garland. And you know, we, we, we keep going back and back with some of our stories. Um, the same with fairy tales. It's the same with uh, we revive stage plays, and so it's it's more like um, you know the only reason you should reboot something is you've got something new to bring to it. Um, so I worked on a Ninja Turtles movie. It was an animated movie, um, and they just keep remaking those characters. And you can enjoy many eras of Ninja Turtles. They they can you can enjoy the the, the more uh, the kid version that uh, young kids enjoy, and then there's like the gritty graphic novel version and uh, then there's the silly Nickelodeon TV show version and then there are some people now that are hardcore fans of the 90s rubber suit version the live action movies um, you know it just depends on when you grew up and when you watch them and, and now the same is for Batman the same is for Spider-Man many of our iconic characters uh, we seem to be very afraid to remake Indiana Jones with any other actor but I, I think it's going to happen I think it's coming um, because we want our characters to live on. I think I've spoke, spoken about this in the past. Um, we're allowed to remake James Bond. We're allowed to make, uh, take, let new actors, not only a new actor take on the role, but the whole world changes. The world of the Roger Moore James Bond, it's like a different universe. It's like a different movie world than the world of Daniel Craig's James Bond, which is a much more real world, a much more tragic world, a much more gritty and violent world than Roger Moore, who's like, I, I, I believe once he was inside a submarine that looked like a crocodile. Um, he fought a guy with metal teeth and zero gravity. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's just different. It's just different. It's a different universe. You don't have to get mad at that universe. They're different. So when you reboot or remake or readapt a piece of art, um, you know, I, I think we as audience members need to just relax a little bit and go, well, you know, I didn't like, you know, if you didn't like the Lady Ghostbusters, well, you know, just put that on that other shelf and go watch your man Ghostbusters, <laughs> which are which are really kind of problematic if you watch them again. A little, a little misogynistic, a little, 
you know, the Bill Murray character, he's a little rapey, I gotta say. He's, uh, you know, he's not just hunting ghosts in that movie. So you can really, really love that movie, but even that movie of those Ghostbusters, they are operating in a different New York. That's not even a 2022 New York anymore, as far as how Times Square looks, or downtown, or uh, even how blue-collar ghost-busting workers would would exist. So, so uh, you know, it's it's almost like you can't you would have to almost clone those actors as their young selves again and do a period movie in the 80s if you want to get another one of those. It's just we have to kind of keep looking at not only how are we making art and readapting our stories, but um, what culture are we in? What year are we in? Um, you know, superhero movies now or fantasy uh, movies now, you know, they're, they're, they're doing more with the uh, Lord of the Rings lore. Those kinds of projects are going to take on more diverse cast, more diverse cast members. You're going to see uh, uh, many more uh, colors of faces than you did in the '70s and '80s, and rightly so. Um, you know, uh, latest news is uh, we're going to have a black Doctor Who. I think it's high time. Uh, we had a female Doctor Who. You know, this character keeps regenerating. Talk about a character that keeps readapting itself for the times we're living in, or for the actor that will not only, uh, uh, they, they take on the role and do something different, they're allowed to do something completely different every four or five years with that character. He literally, he or she literally gets to wear a different kind of wardrobe, have different affectations. Um, you know, I often think, what would I, what, what Doctor Who would I be? I, I, I think he'd be a guy that really likes hats. I think he'd wear a lot of, he'd wear a different hat every season that he's, he really loves. I don't know why. Um, and maybe he has a cool uh, umbrella. He has a sonic umbrella instead of a screwdriver. I don't know. It's always fun to think about. But but uh, my point is, don't fear the adaptation. Don't fear the reboot. Um, we're currently, uh, uh, one of the projects I'm working on that we're going to talk about today is a, um, a book series. It's a literary work, and so it inevitably has fans. And we, with the consent of the author and the creator are taking certain liberties because you you can't just directly translate a book. It would take forever, even as a TV series. And I think it would be boring. I think it would not be a good thing. It's not a good thing to directly translate all the Harry Potter books to the screen. Um, you know, it's it's you just have to love one form as it is and love the other form as a movie. Anyway, I think I've said too much. I don't know if I've said anything at all. Uh, other than love the Ninja Turtle and Ghostbuster and Batman that you want. Uh, and if you don't love that one, I'm sure there's a younger person who loves the other ones and you can love the older one. <sighs> but let's get to my guest and let's get to uh, their take on adaptations and the project that they're uh, all the way up to their eyeballs in. Let's uh, let's listen in. My guest is one of the most creative producers I know in that he loves to talk the creative talk but can also talk and geek out about animation software or uh, uh, investor models. And so I just wanted to have him on the show because there's nobody like him, Chris Wall. <laughs> hey, Gory. Welcome, Chris Wall. What are you up to? Okay. Let's, let's, let's get right to what you're up to your eyeballs in right now. Yeah, absolutely. So it is the Wing Feather Saga. Um, yeah. This amazing set of fantasy books that I was handed the first copy of in 2006 uh, by my friend Andrew. 
uh, sorry, 2008, yeah, by my friend Andrew Peterson, who I'd gotten to know as a songwriter. And it's that odd moment when someone who does a thing yeah. introduces you to another thing they do. Uh-huh. So I knew him as a songwriter, and he goes, hey, I wrote a book, a fantasy book. You should read it to your kids. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I'm sure it's great. Did that, yeah, did that sound like, you got to come to my one-act play. Right. It's that weird bridge. Yeah. It's like, when, I mean, who was, the, who was the person who, when Steve Martin said, hey, I play a banjo. Yeah. With jokes? Yeah. <laughs> like, no, no, I mean, I play a really, really mean banjo. And then you're like, oh my gosh, you're amazing. So it was that. We, we read that um, first book and, and just had a blast with it and, and then read along the series through 2014 and, and were like, wow, these are really good. Yeah. Um, and, and now we're getting to make it into an animated series, uh, overnight success after, yeah. six, after six years of chasing it. Um, Ugh. and, and I, it's, it's to be clear. So you and I are sitting here, uh, in this wonderful space. We're literally sitting in front of Tolkien's fireplace. Yes. What a great place to do an interview. It's really great. So we're we're usually doing it over the phone or I'm just sitting somewhere in a coffee shop, but this is when he says Tolkien's fireplace. It's Tolkien's fireplace because Andrew just found it. Like, or he heard about it in London or somewhere in the yeah. UK. Yeah, so we're here at Northwind Manor, which is a part of the Rabbit Room, a not-for-profit, and it's a um, uh, retreat center and an event center uh, called Northwind Manor. And I served on the board of the Rabbit Room for a long, long time, just rolled off. And uh, this was a dream of Andrew's and Pete's and Christie's, who founded the organization, uh, to have a physical space. Yeah. Um, and he writes about this quite a bit in his second memoir, God of the Garden, of just yeah. the importance of space, of physical places, right? And in the process of this, somebody approached and said, hey, his house, uh, Tolkien's house in Oxford, he had uh, in his flat this fireplace, and I have, as a collector, been able to obtain this. Uh, do you want it? Uh, <laughs> and and uh, Andrew's like, oh my gosh, we would love to have it at the rabbit room. And so... Yeah. Here it is. Um, I hear it's not actually all that good, that it's kind of smoky. Well, it's a small, it's not, it's not that big of a fireplace. <laughs> it's a British fireplace. So it, it's you a think pretty of like understated, like yeah. wardrobe worthy, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's, no, it's a modest little thing. But it's, it's yeah. fantastic to think that he would have sat, as you and I are sitting right here, looking into those embers and been writing The Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Right? Saying, what's an Elvish word for pipe? Um, yeah, and I wonder if uh, I'd like to think that Andrew wrote the Wing Feather Saga right in front of this fireplace, but he didn't. Yeah, he's know. he's got an equally cool place called the Chapter House, which is like this little cottage, which is like the ultimate writer's tiny little house for him to work in. Yeah. Which is also I'm pretty envious when I walk in there. I'm like, wow. So we have been uh, we've been spending a week uh, with you, uh, myself, and some other writers, and you know, you really kind of put it in a nutshell of like reading a book series saying this should be visualized should it be uh, did you even walk through this should be live action or this should be animated i mean or were you always like this should be animated no well so phil vischer had had brought this and kind of drilled it into me when i was working with him on veggie tales is that you have to earn why a thing should be animated right versus why isn't it just live action right like you know talking animals or of course that blurs more and more each day but you know is there a fantasy element and I, and i just felt like when you read this book series, one of the things that Andrew had done is uh, use a lot of footnotes, which is fun, to reference that the world exists outside the page. Uh-huh. There are other histories, other ideas, other things that have come and gone that you can't quite get to mm-hmm. through the portal of this book, right? Right. And I felt like animation, particularly abstract visualized animation, yeah. 
all our love of 2D, of, of, of Miyazaki, uh, of, of things that like, there's more going on here that we're just gonna hint at, but we're not gonna give up. Animation allows for that. You can do it in live action, but animation really allows yeah. for that. So that was the space. And yeah, I, I, yes, I come from a lot of animation, so of course I favor that, but Andrew and I felt like that was the right thing. The other, I'll just say, is there's a lot of adapted fantasy live action that is just falls short and is kind of done poorly. Everybody imagines that everything is like Lord of the Rings, but there's a long run of other adapted things like that that didn't work out as well. Well, it's a steep hill to climb when you get real people in front of a lens and they're like, and, and, and it, can, it can look dated. That's right. I mean, there's well, a lot as of we're stuff. sitting here right now, of yeah. course, we know that coming up later this year is the new Amazon Lord of the Rings series. Right. And I hope it's awesome. But I, or we, I'm just nervous. Like, it could be terrible. Right. You know? <laughs> right. You can, you, can, you can achieve something a little more timeless sometimes with animation. Mm -hmm. And you walk down the road of like, oh, should this be a movie? And yeah. you and I got together and we were working on a, on a feature script. And it seems like, uh, we can talk a little bit about this, but when you adapt something or, or you, you, you approach it and you're like, what form should this take? It mm -hmm. eventually mm -hmm. tells you whether people didn't want to make it into a feature or whatever, but, but it seems like this is the right form that it has taken. Because yeah. the book series is so deep. Um, I mean, it's, there's, there's just a lot. There's a lot well, to get and done. So this is an interesting thing. That's a great question. Unless you got Harry Potter money. That's right. Well, but even that, wouldn't Harry Potter as a series have been amazing? Yeah. It oh could have gone gosh, for many right. years. Yeah. It almost felt a more unwieldy as a, a feature film franchise. There's it, just a lot quite, that has to get done. What do you put on screen? What do you leave off? Right. Like, there's a lot of things. Wouldn't Lord of the Rings as a series have been amazing, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, exactly. We had, we had always hoped to be a chapter-by-chapter -chapter experience. Andrew had hoped. You know, in reading the books, the, the, the unfolding, the, the cliffhangers, the, the, the feeling of that, that is so fun to experience, particularly as a family, uh -huh. right? That you're like, what happens next? Yeah. You know, and, and serialized storytelling is just such a lovely format. And, and in feature, that's not, those are more completed experiences. And so, we had always hoped for that. Finding a place for... Um, serialized stories in our current world is interesting because that see how that immediately flips like the hope of a story flips right to how do you get it to an audience uh -huh. and I think that's an interesting space that I as a producer have had to navigate right yeah. that I want this experience I'm a nerd for the story how does it work in the marketplace where are those places well those places right now have been dominated by streamers right yeah. the, the kind of short series uh, Stranger Things comes to mind, of course, and others uh, now in the Star Wars and, and, and Marvel universe where they're chapter-by-chapter experiences um, that, that you look forward to every week, this kind of thing. Um, Network is doing it too, but, but the family gathering place seems to have moved to streaming, right? Where yeah. I, for you and your kids, me and my kids, we're sitting down, and it's the streamers that are getting our attention in that space. The thing that was difficult then, <laughs> flipping yet another page, is the economics of that are... are not very incentivized and in, in that you bring intellectual property like we have with Wingfeather Saga to that doorstep, you lose your intellectual property to those streamers and you're just now being hired to produce your own thing with yeah. a certain percentage of, of, of profit, but no participation in it being successful. So it goes on and, and is, is raging worldwide success. You get an attaboy. You're not a part of that. <laughs> uh, and that's not, that, that, that feels irresponsible. Yeah. Like if we're trying to build something to engage families in for a long time and kind of capture their imagination with this wonderful world, to just go do that feels wrong. 
And so we, we kind of ended where, where then you and I started talking about, well, maybe we need to package this as a feature because the feature model, you can own stuff. Yeah. And it, you, you can stay with that. And, and then COVID, right? <laughs> and yeah. theaters went through all this massive disruption. So it's like, well, that's not a good one. Then there started to be these emerging ideas of are there other paths that could happen? And Angel Studios came into the picture for us. Yeah, uh, they had done dry bar comedy and demonstrated a, a path to an audience that was interesting and, and kind of <clears throat> diverse, and then had just gotten gotten into this thing called the Chosen, right? This interesting Bible series about the disciples and Jesus, which, frankly, I'd seen a lot of and had no interest in, <laughs> you know. Right. Um, but uh, kind of was forced to watch it and found it was fantastic. Like we loved it. My kids loved it. My yeah. teenagers and my little ones. Everybody was like, "This is engaging." and it's chapter by chapter and what's the next one. And I want right. to know what, what happens with that character, even though I have a Bible, I know what happens <laughs> to that character. It's such a different approach to that group of characters. It is. And it's like, I, I feel invigorated too. And the method in which I'm watching this, where I'm watching this show for free and yet I want to engage in it because I love it so much and I, and I'm going to pay it forward or I'm going to buy a t-shirt or whatever. That whole thing started to emerge is like, wow, this is really a different way for an audience to engage. Um, they were inspired, we now know, by uh, Epic Games, right? And Fortnite. Mm. Let them in for free. Don't make them pay at the door of the 60 bucks. Let them in for free. And we'll find a way to, because they want it so much, they'll engage in the in the the necessary commerce to keep it going, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. In a different way. And so that brought us to what we got to do with Wingfeather here. And as we sit here, you know, season one is in production and, and we got supported by a whole lot of our fans uh, and uh, we'll see uh, as, as the show comes out if they love it. We hope they do, and and we get to do a lot more of this. But um, it's an interesting way to approach the problem, right? Of, I want to tell a chapter story. Uh, broadcast television, cable television may not be my path out because of the time, the kind of story I want to tell. Right. Well, but it's it, a very old-fashioned story. It's yeah. an old-fashioned style of story, but you guys are doing it not only – I hope we have time to talk about the new ways you're telling it as far as the animation style – in the, in the software you're using, but also the distribution, the way you're getting it to eyeballs, yeah. is this new frontier. It is. And, and the fact I that think, you have the bandwidth to even understand it, I'm still just trying to understand <laughs> But I think, Corey, if you it. can get, if, just as a creator, you don't want to make a thing that sits out there and nobody gets to enjoy it. Like For right. us, it was always like, okay, let's make a thing that then has a way to get in front of an audience, families or, 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 or kids, that, that they can get to us and we're not just lost in the sea of content. It, what's the way to do that? And so we found building off the, the engagement of the crowd that we already had, right? People who had read the books and were fans of that, though relatively small, right? They're uh -huh. not as big as Harry Potter or Lord uh -huh. of the Rings, but they're passionate. Is there a way to engage them in the process of the making of the thing? That's the big disruption, right? Because often these fans end up kind of isolated. And, and Kickstarter had done, has done and continues to do a nice job of connecting fans to those things in, mm -hmm. in these kind of... Yeah, in explaining this, this isn't like the typical. We've heard about crowdfunding. Sure, th sure, sure. That's not what this is. Yeah, where for your you series. just you just give some money and then and then they go maybe give you a T-shirt. This is people actually chose. This is astonishing. We have a vehicle thanks to the United States Security and Exchange Commission, <laughs> where we can sell shares in our little animated studio company mm -hmm. for the Wing Feather Saga animated series. That people can buy a share. It's like buying a brick in a building. It's like you're there for that. It's it's, it's an old system, right? Uh, but it's also relatively new in that it's only been around for maybe four or five years that they rolled it out as part of like the Jobs Act back in 2015 or 16, whatever. 
um, that people could sell shares to buy a co- to buy shares in a coffee shop or, or whatever small business. And some people were like, what about you know making a little film studio? And so we set off to do that and we wanted to sell $5 million in shares, right? To fund season one. That's a pretty big ask. And what was remarkable is as we told that story in the right way with, to, with some really skilled people that are good at marketing, to, to make sure it was clean, you're gonna buy shares to make the next you know, animated series that could be amazing. And a lot of them were already familiar with the series. Like, oh, I love these books. Right. And I would love to be a part. And if it goes on to great success and can be profitable, we get to participate in that you as get shareholders, yeah. right? Like, I, I'm there and I get to be a part of that. And, and which is like, even if I think I've, I've backed some of these other projects too, even if I don't know that it's ever going to make a bunch of money, the idea that I might get paid back and make something good in the world that, that I'm a fan of, I mean, it's wins all around. Yeah. It's a cool thing. Rather than just donate and it goes away and, I'm, and it goes on and it's a raging success and I don't get to be part of that, um, this has a kickback. Like, no, I'm a yeah. shareholder, so I get to be a Well, and let's talk about this IP because I wanted to circle back to adapting. This is an IP, intellectual property, if you don't know what that means. It's a book series, and it's, but people like, people that know this book series, it's one of those special things where they're passionate about it. Right. They're excited about it. They evangelize, you got to read this book. Um, and um, that, that helps. But it's does, also intimidating. But is, I was going to say, is that is there also a downside? What's the con to that? Are you carrying these fans on your back who are whispering in your ear, you better get this right? Is Does Andrew, yeah. the author, feel that? Well, so our first toe in the water for that was our Kickstarter way back in 2016. That we were like, do we want to adapt this to an animated thing? Because plenty of people thought it should be a live action thing. The Narnia series had happened, right? right. Live action and, and, of course, Lord of the Rings. And they were like, we want it to be like that. And, and, we, and I said, well, I think it'd be animated. So our toe in the water was, hey, let's go raise a little bit of money and do an animated short, a little test, and mm-hmm. see if we even offer that, if the fans will be into it. And then if we execute on it, will they like it? Yeah. So, so that short film got produced uh, and released in 2017, and the fans loved it. Like, I, I wouldn't say universal, because that's dumb, but majority... Yeah. We're like, oh my gosh. This it was is, an encouraging this is, place this, to be in the testing ground. That's we right. We were like, all right, let's take our next step. I read the book. This works. Okay, so we felt like, okay, there's a, we have a good way forward. Now, uh, we don't know, but we think we've, got, we've done the same kind of work, um, sort of rigorous adaptation uh, uh, that, that we did in the short now on, on the first season. I, I, I said at the beginning, I said, um, I want this story to exist... No, this story does exist in, a, in, a, in its own space. It exists as a thing in the world. Andrew, in the books, wrote down his version of the events that he saw you mm. know, as an author. Let's imagine that's a thing. And we are approaching this to tell our version of the same events. We're not going to change the events, but we're going to see them differently. It's not unlike reading in the Bible the Gospels, uh-huh. right? That the, the, these different viewpoints, sometimes seemingly conflicted, are just their version of the same events as they saw them and understood them. Right. Could we do that? Because what I have a high sensitivity to personally as a as just a lover of great movies and stories is anything derivative. And, you know, they talked about this quite a bit at Pixar uh, in the early days mm-hmm. where anybody would come into the studio with just a really wonderful experience of having had something happen to them. They would then say, hey, if we want to pursue that as a story idea, 
we all must go have firsthand experience with that because we don't want it to be a second hand of what you experienced and therefore derivative. Wow. So everybody would take a trip. Or that's right. We're all going to go experience this so we can all then unpack this experience ourselves. Our art director, Garrett Taylor, uh, joined us this last summer for Wing Feather Saga after 10 years at Pixar. And his discipline to that same craft in art is amazing. That, wow. That I don't want to make a piece of work off of someone's painting. I want to go find the thing that inspired that painting and also do it, right? Wow. And, and it's, it's, he spends a lot of time on Google Earth. <laughs> That's the funniest thing. Yeah. Uh, and what can inspire me to the firsthand thing? So for us, it's looking at the books that we have enjoyed as a reader and going, okay, that's his telling. Can I get the story in my head imaginatively? Can it live in a space where it's alive? And can I then episodically, you know, episode by episode, tell that story in our own way as visual storytellers and animation? Can we give both the reader a fresh experience and people who've never read the series a way into this wonderful story? Yeah. Right. And I think that's been the task that. I, I, for a long time, wasn't, I didn't quite understand why um, Adapted Screenplay was a separate award for the Oscars. I totally get that now. <laughs> uh-huh. Because you really are finding what's our way, what's our way into this story? What's our way to understand these characters um, uh, in, in a visual format where I can't get inside their heads and I don't want to use a narrator, you know, and, and voiceover, uh, the, the kind of cruxes. You know, we all know what it, uh, somewhat... Um, cheaply adapted stuff is where you're literally just kind of taking the page and putting it on screen. Like yeah. that doesn't feel good. You know, right. it's like it's, and some fans would say they well, some, some fans of books don't understand. You can't just directly translate. That's right. And I think, I think know, Andrew understands it too. Famously Lord of the Rings is a wonderful adaptation. And yet, and yet if you have the books open, you, you really start to see how they veered. Right. Sure. If you're watching the movies, you might think, wow, they really got it all just right, you know. But in reality, they're adjusting and moving things around, and, and they got really good at kind of writing the author voice. In our world, Andrew is a co-EP with me, and so his ability to make sure that the voice is, is staying true to his world and that we're getting all the right stuff is, is awesome. Yeah. It's right there. You know? Well, having had this experience a couple times now, I've been in the writer's room and, and gotten to see you guys work together. He is the... He's one of the most chill creator authors. Not that I've worked with a lot of authors, but like, it's not like you're optioning this thing and then going away and working on it and hoping he likes it. Uh, he's there in the room. He drops yeah. by. He chimes in. But I was amazed at how he could let go of a chain of events. The chain of events doesn't have to happen the same way. Or you might say, we got to combine these two characters or we got to put... You know, this event happens a couple of different times mm-hmm. in this in the mm-hmm. town of Glipwood. Mm-hmm. Can we make it happen in one mm-hmm. moment? Mm-hmm. Like we're creating a brand new thing that didn't really exist in the books. He's like, yeah. So Andrew, like I said, has had, had a, you know over twenty year. I think it's over twenty five now in music, uh, and in music, you walk into a studio with an idea, and then your your players start contributing, and you're like taking and adding little spices and you're like a sous chef letting people kind of suggest and try things and you're steering it but you're also letting it grow into what it wants to be and then you take that music and you play it with an audience and an audience tells you what they think of that and what they're engaging in and how it's filling their imagination differently than maybe you thought it would and what resonates so he's had that discipline in his life as the stories got out into the world and he's done read alouds and he's done all this stuff the audience has told him back from that experience over the last, it's now 15 years, what they think of his story. 
you know, in Wing Feather Saga and what they resonate with and what really tracks. So he's got a really good sense of what is important to the spine of it that we want to protect. Yeah. And what is, this was a fun bit of filler. Audience thought it was fine. It could be changed. Like yeah. This is, this could be changed or swapped out to this other thing and it wouldn't blow the story up. Yeah. Cause I don't mean to say he's so laid back. He doesn't care what's happening. No. He would stop us and go, there's been this image in my mind ever since I wrote the entire book of these two brothers in this moment, and yep. I want to make sure that's in there. Yep. So it's more of... Um, I think what we talked know. about this yesterday in just our writer development, but what I want to hold to is I don't mind changing the sequence of events. This happened, then this happened, then this happens. I want to maintain the emotional through line, that the emotional arc here is I felt this way, this character felt this way, then had this experience which made them feel this way. That is, for me, the, the spine I want to walk most closely to. Yeah. Uh, that this was a, uh, a scary, then thrilling moment. I don't want to turn into you know, a, a funny, then awkward moment. Yeah. That, that's not true to what it was. You both the- are really in sync about tone, too. This is not... Sure. I think we were throwing around Princess Bride mm-hmm. early on, but I don't know that it's that. I, don't, I think it's a little more dark. It's, there's a little more weight to it. it it's kids going on an adventure, but yeah. it is not. I think the Princess Bride reference that, light. that we've that I've learned, Corey, in the journey here is that Princess Bride is <clears throat> true to itself. It's authentic. It doesn't. It's not jokey. Uh huh. Right. Okay. It's, okay. it's funny, uh, but it's also kind of dark. Yeah. I I, I, told the, I talked to the team a lot about this. That the um, the fire swamp. I mean, a fire <laughs> swamp right away. I just said something rather silly, but it's also a little scary. Mm-hmm. There are ROUSs. <laughs> also silly and a bit scary. Rodents of unusual size. I don't believe they exist. And and it's it's this balance of they're not in there to do Monty Python jokes. It's a it's a story with real stakes that you worried about whether the hero is going to survive. He actually gets bloodied on his shoulder, right? Mm-hmm. Like oh oh oh, he's actually getting hurt, right? Um, so it's this balance of being whimsical mm-hmm. while while still putting stakes forward. Right. So yes, our stakes are are perhaps. You know, stronger, especially as you move forward in the story. But the, the sense of whimsy, the sense of a family that's really engaging in these things and feeling things, and, and it can be funny. Uh, they're not telling jokes. And, and I think that that's the lane we try to be into is there's a lot of um, kids and family entertainment that's jokey. Um, right. And it's fun um, in that regard. But it's a little bit disposable. Right. Um, I remember that feeling after, which I love, but the first Lego movie, laughed my butt off. Couldn't remember some of the jokes immediately following. Yeah, because they weren't tied to situations that were really yeah. evocative. It was right? a gag fest. It was yeah, yeah. A, a joke fest, right? Joke like fest. wonderful set of punchlines, but it didn't build to moments where it, that we were talking about this with some of the great comedies in that we love. You know, that there's situations that I can't believe how funny that situation is, and those deeply resonate. That I've had that feeling in my own family life. You know that I and I can carry it away. I can't forget this awkward situation you know yeah um and that may, will often tie to dialogue and other pieces like that but but the situation is the stronger bit and if we can earn those authentic things in our own series that that the book started and hopefully we can carry then the tone is really what we want it to be which is somewhere in the princess bride territory I yeah mean, i think that's that's where it says like it's similar to that um when they watch ours it won't be oh this is just like princess bride um, but the other thing that we've learned from the audience over the years, and it's a scary association, but they associate this series a lot with Narnia. Uh-huh. The difficulty with Narnia so is... So it's a scary association? It, the difficulty yeah. with Narnia is it towers. It's just, oh my gosh. But the writing style of Lewis is similar. 
Andrew's mm-hmm. writing style is a bit whimsical in that way. Those are pretty short books. I think people forget. That's right. Too. But they're pretty light. They are pretty light. So, so it's somewhere between there and then Lord of the Rings in that we are on an epic journey with the destination, mm-hmm. right? But we're not nearly as, as robust as Tolkien, good heavens. Uh, so there's, it's somewhere in between. The other challenge with... This was the hardest part of the journey, honestly, Corey, uh, is that we are in this between space where people will read or associate because of Andrew's other music and say, oh, this is a Christian thing, that this is a Christian fantasy. Mm-hmm. And, and we are like, well, no... And, and because if you want that out of us, we don't satisfy your sense of allegory and what you might bring hoping for a Christian thing, Pilgrim's Progress, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Right. Like, much of Narnia is fantasy and just wild, like, magic stuff. Uh, but Lion, the Witch, of course, is straight allegory. Right. Right? We don't, we don't satisfy that itch. And so people coming to us for that are, are like, no, we don't have that kind of organized structure. Or we wouldn't want to do but we are a fantasy series that is being told by Christians. Yeah. Right? So our so difference. the Christian ethic is going to show up in the stories. Yeah. But not in an overt way. And nor are we interested in that. It's frankly. coming from that creator's worldview and it is just, just leaking into it's it. It's just passive and subversive. Well, the trouble is in the marketplace, we are in a weird spot where we smell of <laughs> Christian faith. And, and there's probably something we're trying to do in the material to pull the wool over somebody's eyes. Mm-hmm. And yet, we're also way too magical and non-allegorical for the Christian market. Yeah. So we're definitely between the spaces. So this also brings up that question of audience. Like, we think there's an audience that wants this kind of storytelling. Yeah. There's just not a marketplace for it. Well, Andrew kind of seems to be the epicenter of a, a unique new kind of creator. And, and the rabbit room is drawing artists like that who come from a faith background where they want to explore uh, uh, spiritual parts of their lives, but not in the traditional way mm-hmm. that a lot of uh, uh, Christian music industry or, or whatever, whatever the Christian film industry is. This is like it's a new way of, of, of Christians just expressing art that... The rabbit room is kind of becoming a brand for that. And it's like, it's, it's why I'm so glad to get to come back here mm-hmm. and create with you guys. Because just being in this house by <laughs> Tolkien's Fireplace, by Madeline Langle's original library of books, which yeah. is over in that corner. Um, you're getting a little bit of that fairy dust that is just neither here nor there that you're trying to describe. Yeah. I was also going to bring up, you're such a keeper of this flame. I mean, a lot of producers are the first guys in. And the last guys to turn the lights out on a project. Yeah. But you've been like a decade or more on this. Like you have never given up on this to the point where I would say you almost know these books more than the guy who wrote them. You will correct Andrew on like, <laughs> well, no, no, that, that character actually comes in on book three. And he's like, does it? <laughs> right? Yeah. Are you just obsessed with them? Did you let yourself or did your kids keep you obsessed with them? Oh, gosh, that's such a good question. You know, so Andrew spent 10 years writing the books and lived them out. And then they're on a shelf and it's completed and he continues to revisit. I, as the executive producer and now showrunner, have a responsibility to have the story world completely alive in me. Because so many people that want to know what, how does the story world hold consistent? And mm-hmm. I have a responsibility to, to be able to answer those questions, right? Yeah. And, and if it isn't up in my head and living and, and alive in me, who's got it, right? It's like, oh my gosh, <laughs> who's steering yeah. this boat, right? So I feel that sense of responsibility and, and carry that and try to inform as much as I can. Um, I love the story. It, it, um, it's a weird shift. I haven't had um, <laughs> this opportunity 
coming into VeggieTales, it's Phil's world, right? Phil created it with right. Mike, you know, and I'm here to be a producer to help satisfy continuing to build that out. But the, but the structure's in place. Um, in, 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 in Slugs and Bugs show, uh, you know, I got to fabricate that world and bring it to life and find it. And I'll just jump in. That's another show you created. Another kid it's show. a puppet uh, a show. Yeah. Right? Yeah, some puppets, some animation, and a lot of fun music. And, yeah. And it's delightful. But in that one, it was whole cloth. It was like, you know, there was some music and there was some... You're creating that from thin air from it, scratch. It is, build it up. So yeah. that, okay. that, the story world has to live in my head and, and, and work. And then in this series, it's, it's from a, a, a book, right? And from these books, but it has to come alive in a story world that exists that we can all work together cohesively. Um, which, you know, I share with Andrew, of course, but it's, it's my job to hold that up in, in space, you know, and make sure it stays alive. Right. And that someone throws in something that doesn't work in the world that we can, Go, wait, no, that doesn't fit here. Don't add that. You know? Right. It's not even that you're saying, I don't want that, or Andrew doesn't want that. It's like, you know what? We've kind of been orbiting around this universe a long yeah, time, yeah. and it actually doesn't fit. Yeah. It's actually going to bump into some things if you put that element and into it's a, And it's a, what else you got? You know, I, uh -huh. I think I'm, I always want to, in those spaces, be invitational, not not shut down corner. You know, but but I like, that's interesting. I don't think it works because of these things, but what else do you, What else could we contribute? Because I always want every, all of our team contributing and firing off and finding it. Uh, and, and they want to, you know, be in the, the same universe that it's, that we don't swirl off into something that's weird. Um, and I, you know, it's interesting for Andrew, you, you talk about that, that he is so invitational for that. Like, you know, I don't love this, but what else could we do? Right. And, 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 and often able to say why, right. I don't love this because it starts to make me feel like this. Oh mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. We don't want to feel like that. Let's find a way to get to the why, um, and, and, and another way into it. The other thing Andrew talks about a lot that you mentioned a minute ago, uh, that is such a part of what we're doing is in, in a certain kind of storytelling of faith. It is, I had this problem, uh, that I couldn't get past in my, in my life and my, whatever that is. And then I met Jesus <laughs> and now everything is perfect, <laughs> right? That's a version. Yeah. Andrew's version of that. And a lot of the storytellers, a lot of the things around here are, are different in that I had this great problem in my life. I met this person of Jesus, and now I have someone with me as I continue to work out my problems. Mm -hmm. It's not a magic pill. I have a great, I have a great friend who is with me, and and uh, th that companionship, that that um, God with us, is the great, the greatest part of that promise. Uh, and everything made perfect. That's something for. The coming kingdom, right? Mm -hmm. the, the coming kingdom of God. But that doesn't happen necessarily right here, right now, all the time. Well, the and characters in this book, they go through some hard right. things. Not to give anything away, in this book series, they go through some really hard things. That right. I, I, I wonder if kids even under 10, you have to judge it from kid to kid as you read this book aloud. And as that, they experience this series. And you have to be comfortable with the unresolved. Mm. And, 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 and staying curious to the mystery that's ahead. You have to be comfortable with unresolved. You have to be comfortable with mystery. Uh, and that's a space that, that implicates both theology, that implicates a lot of things in storytelling, that the, the definite is something we don't like. Like, mm -hmm. I don't want to ever pull down a resolution to a button, you know, or a statement or a sticker, <laughs> mm. you know, that like, this is an answer we'll get to for that character and what they go through for the moment they have gone through. And it's their answer. And it may not be the best answer. And it may be a bit unresolved, but it is the answer they came to. Right. And, and that's okay. Uh, uh, you know, it's interesting. Our, the sister show on the platform, Chosen, uh, they went through a really interesting kind of fuss around their season two 
where they have a character who is literally a disciple with Jesus uh, and backslides, goes and like falls into some, you know, hmm. and, 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 and there was a big split in, in, in the kind of Christian world of like, can that happen? Can, <laughs> can, this person has Jesus, like actual person. That's, that's fully everything they would ever need. They would never choose not to. And, and Dallas came out punching on that one. And we would too, which is that we all choose our journeys, whether we're adjacent to truth or not adjacent to truth. Like there's lots of lanes here yeah. that leave us with uh, unresolved answers that we have to just be comfortable with and, and okay with the mystery of it. Right, right. right. Um, and I think in the storytelling for us, uh, just from a straight storyteller side, we don't want midichlorians to find their way into the world. Preach. Deuces mystery. And it's like, wait, no, Oh no, my gosh. Don't. Midichlorians represent that need for the definite yes. and the period on the end of the sentence you're talking about. Whereas the force was originally, well, what do you think it is? Mm-hmm. Well, it can mean a lot of things. Yeah. Always in motion, is it? Uh, you know, um, so I think that was... That's a good way to put it. I was going to say, when you talk about being comfortable with the mystery and comfortable with the unresolved, I want you to tell the people listening what you told me off mic, which was something John Cleese said in the yeah. creation process of even as you're creating something to wait till the last possible minute mm-hmm. on what you're creating mm-hmm. and sit with it. Okay. So I had this professor at ORU, my alma mater. Yeah. Weird, interesting. ORU is such an interesting experience. Still meet people. But... Uh, Laura Holland, wonderful theater professor, just retired communication arts person. And, and she told us, and I remember feeling kind of a little trite, but she said, you know, listen here, we were in a writing class. God is in the rewrite. And I remember being like, ha you know, sure, right? But what, what I've learned from that, and I actually told her this a couple months ago when she retired, <laughs> is that that has a far more profound implication when you really get into it. And, and I correlate that to a talk I heard from John Cleese talking about the endurance of some of his writing and some of his sketches from the Monty Python days. And he said, I was looking at my, my material and I was looking at material from another colleague who was brilliant and we would have a writing deadline. I don't remember the exact, but it was like, let's say it was every Friday, Friday morning, our writing deadlines. And we'd start into it on Monday. And he said, pretty consistently, my friend would arrive at his conceit pretty fast and by Wednesday morning, turn it in and he's clear the rest of the week. And I was always late turning it in right on the wire on Friday my ideas would come slower and then I would sit with them. And he said, what I found is that sitting with the discomfort of an unresolved creative problem often found the deeper, the better, the best stuff uh-huh. that, that you have to recognize I need to choose to sit with this discomfort that I, there's a part of my physiology yelling at me right now saying, just wrap it up. Right. Mm-hmm. And be done with it. Finished. Mm-hmm. And if I can fight that, I can be rewarded with the better stuff, right? Yeah. And that I think even as, as any creator, but certainly Christian creators, right, there's a sense of holy writ, right? Mm. I, had a, I had an apostrophe hit touch my brain, <laughs> right? And, and we go, there it is. I got to put it down. And it, okay, do you want to come back to it? Do you, there's a tenacity in art. There's a tenacity for the craft that I find often lacking in our Christian culture. Uh That is a hunger, a burn, a passion for the craft that that burns harder, frankly, and makes the better work. And so often we find that like, there's there's something that's that's missing there. And so there's, I arrived at something, it feels pretty buttoned up, it feels pretty good, I'm gonna go with that. Instead of what else is there? And this is interesting, so when we set off in 2015, Andrew and I had, I'd finished up at Veggie, finished at DreamWorks, and was like, all right, Andrew, 
you and I, we're going we're gonna to join forces. I didn't want to option the rights for this series. I wanted to partner with him and go make Wing Gliss Saga so that we could try to keep it true to his, his tone. Um, I thought, you know, we'll get this done. We're gonna, in, in a year or two, this will be done. And someone at that time said, yeah, sometimes this takes five, ten years to get these things going. And I was like, that's insane. You don't, <laughs> you don't know. At, at uh, December, it was Christmas of 20, I was like, it's been five years, coming on six. I need to tell Andrew that it's, it's over. I, I've tried my darndest, and I can't get this thing off the ground. I have poured myself into it. We did this massive Kickstarter. Like, we've done all this stuff, and I just can't get it moving. And we had a, a republishing deal with, with Ping and Random House and huge success in 2020, and we still couldn't get anybody to move. All the streamers, all these platforms, just, no, nope, not interested in it. And I was like, he needs to find another producer. And it was just really a dark night of the soul for me. Hmm. Um, and I had worked that story over and over. You and I had spent so much time together on that feature side. Like, I just felt like I knew the story, you know, as Gonzo says, like the back of my hand. Uh, <laughs> Christmas Carol. Um, <laughs> and I just was like, I do, but I can't get it to life. It's just not happening. It's like you're working CPR on a patient and it ain't nothing happening. There's no pulse here. And Andrew had decided in 2020 to do the books as a read aloud on Facebook and YouTube at the same time. And mm-hmm. January is like 23rd, I think, somewhere in that territory. Um, uh, Andrew was on the last chapter of the last book. I was here at Rabbit Room with my daughter Charlotte. Uh, she had been following along with these read-alouds, and I was just volunteering, helping out with some stuff up here. And I knew he was going to read the last chapter that night. Andrew, could I hang around and, and be a part of you reading the last chapter on Facebook? And and also at the place with like, and we're probably going to, you know, we're probably done. You know, I've, I've done my journey with you, but I don't know that there's anything to go. And that afternoon, get a note from Angel Studios. They had met with us, but we're like, we're not sure this is a thing. We don't know if Wingfeather's going to adapt well. We're just not sure. Get a note. That same afternoon, we're all in. We, we read the books. Our kids read the books, and they loved them. We think this is, this is the next thing we're going to put all of our effort into it. Uh, you guys want to do it. And You're at the 11th hour of the 11th hour of the 11th day. You're like, let's turn out the lights. Tried our best. <laughs> Good heroes. I'm sure this I don't know that I'd heard that. Somebody could do it, but it won't be me. Like, it, yeah. Andrew, find somebody else. And, and I got this note, Andrew and I cried. <laughs> and, and then we read the last chapter and we got to sit in the room with him as he read it and, and cried a lot because it's a beautiful book. Um, and then off we went. And, and, and 2021, last year, was just an astonishing year of overnight success, right? Right, of now it worked and, it, and we've exploded and all this success. Well, the happened. first fundraising through Angel Studios, I remember that was also like a, will this work? And totally. it was overwhelming it was what overwhelming. happened, yeah, right? Because, because it that? is that middle space, right? Yeah. Oh, sure. People showed up for the Jesus thing, sand and sandal. Like, <laughs> are they going to show up for yours, right? A, a kid's fantasy with dragons. Yeah. Talking lizards, right? And, it, it, and so when we opened the doors on that, it was so nerve-wracking. That's coming up here actually in a couple of days, uh, the one-year anniversary. But... Um, you, you go, hey, we're going to sell some shares. We're going to try to sell 5 million of them, right? It's like you're opening a store with like all this inventory and you're hoping somebody shows up. And we sold our first million dollars in 48 hours. Wow. Which was the audience saying, yes, we're here for this. We're waiting. And we've been, we just, you haven't gotten to us. You've been trying to and you got to go do it, right? And, and I mean, it was so many tears of joy of just like, okay, yeah. I thought there was something here. But we just couldn't get to them, and we couldn't. And now it was, like, it was like decades of people were saying no to you, but they were the wrong people. 
It was. And you were standing at the wrong doorway, and you finally yeah. opened the right door. Yeah. And there was yeah. like a bunch of other people ready to say yes. Yeah. And this has happened in other arts, right? Firefly, right? Mm. <laughs> Joss Whedon has – it goes to a dead end, and then the, uh, the audience says, wait. Right. <laughs> you know, and, and whatever megaphone the audience can generate for themselves, and, the, and, it, and it goes forward. And we had, a, we had that chance, and, and we're walking in that chance right now. And by that. right now, you mean you are in production on yeah. on season one, and we are currently writing season two while you're making season one, which yeah. is also another kind of big step for you guys. I know, right? right? It's pretty bold. We're... <laughs> right, right. <laughs> it, it, you know, and this is this comes off of the end of, okay, well, I as an audience member don't like waiting for the next season of something, yeah. right? So, so Mandalorian, we've been waiting for a little bit, as you know. Right, and right. And I'm like, come on, guys. Let's, Let's pull do these it. together, you Hit know. the jetpack. <laughs> and and I was like, for our audience, I want to make sure that season two is not two years separated. So if we end to end a production, we do season one and shutter it and then come back and you and I meet at the end of season one and start to think about season two, that gap is going to be about two years. And that's too far. And so what would it look like <laughs> to get going in season two, which we just have started, while season one is actually in production? And uh yeah, we think it's going to work really well and that we're going to be able to excite the audience with like, hey, it's season one, hope you love it. If so, here comes season two right behind Right. Well, you're already year. learning lessons that you're applying to season two. Quite, yeah. And, um, and, and we, this, isn't very, this, isn't, this is a more creative podcast. It's not a technical podcast. But not only are you doing, uh, getting this to an audience in a new way, but you're also using the Unreal Engine. Mm-hmm. And you're doing a, a style of animation or uh, you're using software in a way that, that only – it's a cutting-edge thing, right, that you're doing. It right really now. is. But that, that also comes from that same holistic view. And I think so many times creators get kind of one part of their love of something and don't think about the whole thing. Mm. So, so I could write a script, but I can't get it produced in a certain way to actually meet the audience with any sense of craft, right? And so we had grown tired of watching these – modeling clay on a partly cloudy day CG projects, right? (laughs) (laughs) That's how you call it. Modeling clay on a partly cloudy day. That's the look of CGI for a lot of stuff. Yeah. Or the ultra photo reel. Okay. Well, we'd all work for studios and the ultra photo reel is very expensive. I just read this thing. Uh, uh, Turning red. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. A a nice little kind of packaged movie. I would expect it to be under $100 million, right? Right. 140. Wow. That's too much. Yeah. That's just so much money. That's Incredibles money. So we can't compete with that. <laughs> we can't compete with that, right? Which the, the photo real world of that level, we can't do that. So we could just do the cheaper version. Well, that's like me saying, you like that Mercedes over there? Check out this Kia. Okay, don't do that. <laughs> like the audience knows this is the cheap version. Right. Can you do something with an intention and craft that is simply in the right budget constraint for what you have? Right, yeah. and there was some there was some of that out there. So, Song of the Sea and in two D stuff, you know, and, and sure uh, some of these that are just beautiful to look at, but they're not traditional Western stories, so they're they maybe less accessible for families. And we knew we had an accessible Western story here, right. you know, just is hero's journey kind of thing, you know. Um, and so, but could we embrace some of those artistic choices that improve the craft? So that brought us to well, could we render CGI, which American audiences love? differently could we make it look different does it have to be photo real could it be more artistic could it feel like a paintbrush could it feel like it was a a living uh a 2d type thing even though it's cgi um and so that that was the short film was really to prove out a technology side which again as a storyteller that's like how can i get to an audience with something beautiful 
It yeah. feels artistic, but it's also budget conscious. It's like it sits within a certain budget constraint. Yeah. The series itself now, as we're producing it, is competitive budget-wise with, you know, Dragon Prince, uh, maybe a little bit with Riders of Burke in the Dragon series, things like this, these action-adventure series. So we're competitive in our, we're not as funded, but we're close to the yeah. ballpark. But we think we can bring a certain visual craft to it that will engage the audience and engage your imagination yeah. and, and, and it's a beautiful thing. You know, we want to put good, true, beautiful things into the world and I don't want it to get antiseptic in a cheap CGI yeah. right, that I produce in some It's factory. aesthetically a bold move. It is. You're making a bold move in many departments. When we showed story. the short film to Paramount and Apple and everybody, they all said the same thing. Oh my gosh, that's gorgeous. Wow. What, how did you make this, right? And we mm -hmm. tell them... Wow, we love it, but we don't think audiences will accept it. They really want good old CGI in the way it's done. And we're like, disagree. Well, <laughs> in that journey, middle of that, literally, because uh, this came out at the end of 17, so we're shopping in 18, uh, Spider-Man Spider-Verse hits the market. Yeah. And it was like such a great bump of the jukebox. Yeah, a great right? disruptive oh, piece of art. So thankful for it. And now Missiles versus the Machines, and, and even as we're sitting here, bad guys, you know, that's like, hey, let's do non-traditional CGI. Let's render it differently. Let's let's excite the audience with visual engagement that we haven't yeah. been doing, and 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 that's a disruptor moment where, as an independent, you have an opportunity. Right. Right. There's these moments where you have an opportunity. Unreal Engine, the whole graphics generated world, has been heading to a collision course with these heavy pipelines that the big studios have. Yeah. And I. And for those who don't know, Unreal Engine is like it's traditionally a gaming engine. Yeah, it's a gaming thing. So it's it's the game world. And the traditional animated world on a head-on collision. <laughs> and, and we're at a moment where that pivot has happened. And so series like Netflix's Arcane was produced with the game engine, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so we're able to leverage the power of game engine technology to do CGI character animation. And we're doing it with Maya, the regular things. But suddenly I can, my lighting, rendering, and kind of finishing of that are just easier. This is not unlike when, when you and I first encountered DV video cameras, right? Uh, Where yeah. it's like, oh, I don't have to have a big beta cam, <laughs> you know, which was right. $50,000. I can buy a $2,000 Sony and right. I can get pretty good images out of this. The democratization of filmmaking occurred, right? Mm -hmm. In the late 90s, early 2000s. And so we're at a similar fulcrum where the democratization of animation is beginning to occur. Where I'm literally, for our company, going over to our Best Buy here in Nashville and buying a $1,400 laptop and making our series, right? That's what we're deploying in our team. And it has a little graphics card in it that is powerful enough to do what we need to do. It's, it's, it's amazing. You've been around long enough to recognize these pivot points. Like you've seen it when you talk about something in the 90s that <laughs> happened with digital uh, video. And, uh, and I, I want to back up a little bit because you just glossed over the fact that you've worked for VeggieTales for many years and you were with VeggieTales through the DreamWorks years. And yeah. many of you might not know that DreamWorks kind of shepherded oh my gosh. the property of VeggieTales for a few years. So right. now you're working with people at DreamWorks and I went over there too. It was really interesting to be sitting there talking about uh, vegetables that talk about the Bible uh, in the same building that they're making like How to Train Your Dragon and yeah. the Crudes. Um, and they, and so, would, they told us at the front of that, they're like, you know, this is the house that Prince of Egypt came out of. Yeah. Like, you're not foreign to us. Yeah. They at least respected the property. There's this idea of like the antagonistic, you know, world of Hollywood that hates anything religious. It's not true. It's, 
religion in, in entertainment is difficult, right, to get right. You can get it wrong a lot. Biblical <laughs> epics are relatively safe, but we had a great experience with VeggieTales. Like, they were, they were yeah. so supportive and thought, you guys know what you're doing with this thing, and you're telling these stories and Bible stories and other stories within this context, and it was, it was wonderful. They were so and that was an experience where you felt, I mean, during that time, it sounds like you had a good experience, but you were shepherding an IP. You were shepherding a property that had been around for a long time, had a lot of fans, had a creator, but it was a different experience. Not a bad experience, I guess, but a different experience with Phil Vischer, who created that, yeah. who kind of got to come back in and help with it again, because it's been bought and sold many times, these, yeah. these poor vegetables. They've been, <laughs> these vegetables have been sold so many times, guys. I, yeah, I can't even exactly. tell you. But so, and it's out there again in a new form, Bob and Larry. Mm-hmm. Um, but what did you take from that experience that now you're doing it, you're obviously doing it in a different way. You keep reinventing yourself. What did you take from all that experience with, with Phil Vischer, with Veggie Tales, with mm-hmm. how you lived your life and how you created during that time? Were you like, I got a list of things now I want to do differently? Oh, I, 100%. There were things that I learned through that experience that VeggieTales always had an entertainment first idea, which was we're here first and foremost to entertain kids yeah. and to get kids to love what we're doing and college kids, frankly. Yeah. Uh, and if we do that, Inside of that experience, I can also deliver a, we called it, nugget of truth. Uh But I'm not going to falsify that offer and say, you know, actually, let's start with the nugget of truth. I want to make sure you, that's propaganda. Yeah. Right? That's just bad storytelling. What we knew is we have to entertain. We get great songs, great characters, great stories. And then inside of that, I can always frame out a nugget of truth. I can work hard on my storytelling to make sure we land on something that's actually true with a capital T. Yeah. That was a huge takeaway. It's funny that you mentioned that on the production side, one of the nightmares of my production experience was we ended up doing a production in Hawaii. There was an animation studio that got set up because of some tax credits. And they were like, we have this new pipeline. It's a brand new thing. I don't remember the name of it. It was a total train wreck. Um, And it was the worst, most embarrassing title that I was a part of. And thankfully, I was only kind of, I wasn't (laughs) personally responsible for it, but it was right in the middle of, of a really difficult time. And it was so ugly, and it just looked awful, and we couldn't stand it. It was like because the whole pipeline just fell on. So when you think about risky pipelines, as we're doing today, yeah. like I'm even here, like a little bit nervous about. It. Like <laughs> I, I've, I've seen footage, so it's gonna be great. But uh, <laughs> that experience was so galvanizing to like don't try new things, right? Yeah, and, and it can re- it can it could produce in you a real sense of. Uh, hopelessness, lack of curiosity, like that kind of thing, and that's just not how I'm wired. Uh, yeah, how did you come out of that to do this? So that 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 video, we released it to our horror and chagrin, and it outsold everything around it. <laughs> it flew off the shelf. What? What am I supposed to learn from that? What did you learn from Hoodwinked, right? Right. Which is that, like there's times when the story just works, the characters work, in spite of my ability to make They're it. They're so darn charming that even though the grass textures look horrible. It works. Kids don't care. Kids don't care. <laughs> And I've made things that look amazing, and nobody buys it, right, as part of Veggies. We wow. had titles that we were like, this one's going to blow the doors off, and nobody cares. Uh, and there's just you just come into it with a certain kind of light touch. I told the crew from the beginning of our project here, hey, listen, the thing we're going to make together is a summation of all of our contributions. And it's only going to be as good as we make it based on what, who we have here right now. We can't aspire to be someone else. I can't be John Lasseter. I can't be J.J. Abrams. I can't be those people. I can be me. <laughs> and you can be you. And let's all go make something that we love together. And at the end of that, we might get a win and the audience love it too. But 
sure, we can make something that only we like and nobody else likes it. I don't know. There's, there's just a, I've been around enough now. I've, I produced 16 movies with VeggieTales. Uh, so you get to wow. try some things, right? Yeah. And, and, you, and I think there's a place where you, now late in my career, where I'm like, okay, I've seen some things. And, and I've had optimism at things and I've had low expectations of things and I've always been surprised. And out of that, I carry an optimism that is great stories still happen in the world all the time. Things that shouldn't work suddenly work. I get so excited about innovative surprises that just are around every corner mm. in stories and music and uh, technology. And, and it, it feeds me. This, yeah. I, this like there's, well, we've, there's we've had some long days and I'm just doing the writing part we've had some long days and then you got to jump out of the writing part and you got to go review dailies and you got to go be part of a voice record and you've got to and uh, you just are tireless you are like a battery man and is it is it also just kind of how you live your life I know you told me once you still read your kids at night I do yeah you got a lot of kids too man <laughs> and they're getting old and you're still doing it yeah Heather's so great about she's like Heather and I are partners in crime. My sweet wife, she is my biggest fan and supporter, and she's also the framework. Honey, it's time for us to read. Yes, ma'am. And, <laughs> and, and honey, it's time for us to go camp. Right? Uh. Honey, it's time for us to, and, and this framework of like, this is how we keep balanced as, as, as a family, you know? Yeah. And, and she goes as hard as I do creatively, runs our high school theater program, and just pours into these kids. She was just like so frustrated a couple weeks ago. Like these kids don't care. I'm pouring into them. They're not getting anything. And then they did the show. And after the show, they're like, "Mrs. Wall, you changed my life." You know? <laughs> so uh -huh. like, okay, yeah, fine. I'll do. All it. All right, you've given me enough to keep going. Again. <laughs> right, yeah, I'm filled um, up again. Yeah, and I just think that's a putting good, beautiful things into the world. Uh, whether what whatever that looks like is something that just inspires me. Whether that's technology and and you know some rigor comes away with like a brilliant. Like, oh, I can rig this in a way that I've never done. And I, I remember sitting with one of the animators on our series, and he's like, Chris, you can't believe it. These rigs are amazing. I'm animating. I've, I've never had so much fun animating my life. And I'm like, I love this. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Fantastic. Right? Rigging, which to the outside observer in animation can be one of the most boring oh things yeah. to the layman. It's like, look at this skeleton in a computer that has pivot joints on it. Which but something you, was making him excited. Which I tell you, this is one of the coolest things about animation in particular is because it engages people who are technical, right? Who love stories, but maybe they're not a painter, right? Maybe they're not a storyteller. They can't write like you can, Corey, right? But they can, they can engage in the thing they love yeah, in a very many technical way and go, I was a part of that. I'm yeah. an engineer and I got to make art. Right, Sup what? <laughs> super techie people and super touchy feely people all making one thing. That's what I Which do find magical. Art. It's yeah. wonderful, and and that's what we all love. Like mm -hmm. at the end of the day, my production manager who loves spreadsheets and loves all the check loves art. Like mm -hmm. every time I'm on a call with him, and he's got his cells from Robin Hood behind him. I'm like, the guy loves art. That's great. That's what, that's what that's what we all love together, and I think that is a beautiful thing. It's a, it feels like a holy thing. Mm. You know, there's something about it that I that that my faith just kind of seeps through all of it that that we're we're sub creators with our creator making we're just bringing the kingdom all the time in little ways like we're having little touches of something that delights us whether it's visual or audibly or whatever that is that we go oh that was wonderful little story points that, that we craft together you know like oh i love the way that fit together that just brings me delight that's a coming kingdom of god right like it's a spiritual thing yeah and it can be feel highly technical you're making uh, something, but, and then the something you're making inspires you again. Yeah. It, like, looks back at you, and it gives you a little bit of juice. It couldn't be anything more spiritual than animation, in my opinion, as a you're, filmmaker. 
You yeah. are animating. You are bringing a dead thing. As Disney called You're, it, the illusion of life. You are viewing it with life. Yeah. Well, you and Andrew are both talking about uh, being in creative spaces. Is there anything at your, in your home studio space or something that you... Is there a piece of art you've hung on your wall? Or like, I, I have this little die-cast Millennium Falcon that no matter where I go, it's on my desk. Is there something that makes you happy? I'm just curious. I'm going to ask this arbitrary, <laughs> strange question. Yeah. Um, I a have, little memento from something? I have a funny thing about gizmos and gears. Like something about a bit of a gizmo and, and a gear thing working properly just thrills me. Like yeah. it's just, Which is odd because we had this whole talk about how steampunk is getting old. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so you're not talking about steampunk. No. You're talking about something so, else. So, just a gizmo. So I have around my little desk that, that are inspiring points for me visually are, are, are there's some puppets, which uh, I think are another way of animating, right? Bring it, yes. Uh, there, there's a marionette doll that scares everybody when they come to the office. Cause marionette <laughs> dolls are kind of creepy. Uh, that was <laughs> one of my first inspirations to be a part of storytelling. Doing puppet shows, doing marionette dolls. like that, that, It was my first way into storytelling. Oh, nice. I you didn't know, know as, that. As like a... I had to be like eight or nine. Me and oh. my best friend Jamie, we would go down and we'd do these puppet shows for our families. We'd write them and, and same. And, and you know, we could we need to share some puppet show oh stories about Something. that same age. And then and then just advancing, you know. The, 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 anyways, and, and and learning to entertain and all the things that come along with that, you know. Um, the other that is right next to it is I have some pretty complicated Lego sets. <laughs> ah, right. That you built? That yeah. My son's yeah. frustrated with me because I build my Lego sets very slowly. Are you still building Legos? Mm-hmm. What are you working on right now? Anything currently? A Volkswagen uh, bus that was the, the car I learned to drive in. My parents had one of those camper vans. It was yeah. a bright orange one. Yeah. And they released, it was the Gen 2 of that series, evidently. I didn't understand this about them. Yeah. But I walked into a, a Lego store and it was there. It was a new kit that just came out. And I was like, that's my van. I learned to drive in that thing. I know everything about that thing. And so we've been building it very slowly. Yeah. Because I relish the process. Of, of the creation of it. like <laughs> Yeah, well, you're kind of a gearhead, too. You can talk about cars the way you can talk about Legos. The yeah. Way you can talk about animation. Yeah. And it's all, underneath that all, is a uh, uh, problem solving is the mm -hmm. core of that. I think stories and art, you, you're solving a thing. And, and it is uh, a redemptive work, yeah. right? That, like planting seeds in a garden is a redemptive work. And it's a, it's a solving of a thing for an outcome. You know? Yeah. And um, it all kind of has a similar root. Um, that I that out, that comes out in working on cars. That comes out in working on stories. It's the putting out. it together. It's the solving of it that, that is yeah. also fun. Not just I got to finish it. It's yeah. the, the actual making and solving of it. And the problems of the hearts, right? The problem of of oof, this character is really feeling something, or my friend is really going through something. That can there be a solution for that? You know, is there is there a healer? Is there a way to that this can be made right? Um, those are you know places that continue to just call me forward in curiosity. That's fantastic. Well, it's been inspiring just to talk to you. I know you've got a lot of things you've got to get back to. You've got a show to make. You've got a Lego kit to finish. And uh, I don't know. You're probably going to build a treehouse in your backyard. You're always working on so many things. I'm literally going home right now, Corey, to do a hanging garden. I have to map it Man, out. you just got to say my, no one of these days. No, my boys have to do a project. that they And they got to redo the hanging gardens of Babylon. They gotta, but they're, they're going to build it for real attached to our house outside. Wow. And it's like a whole thing. And literally I'm going to go home and help them map out how to put a truss in the air to build a hanging garden. Wow. I can't even think, of, I can't even think about <laughs> dinner right now. Uh, okay. Well, Chris Wall has been inspiring. It's been great. And uh, we, I'm sure I'll let everybody know more about the Wing Feather saga as it unfolds. That's right. Thanks. Thanks, man. Well, that's our show. I want to thank my guest, 
Chris Wall. Always great to chat with him, and he's always up for a chat. Boy, that, that guy has so much energy. I, I really wish we could uh, uh, bottle it, the Chris Wall energy. I wish we could put it into a battery and uh, sell it because he's, he's, he's always got energies that he's putting towards uh, great things, great creative things. It's, uh, so I appreciate his, uh, his time, and I appreciate your time. And if you're adapting something, uh, even if you're uh, adapting something you've done before in your creative endeavors – and you're changing and evolving, uh, take heart because the new thing you're making is what it's supposed to be for this time, for the time you're in right now. Look around at the tools and the the, the places you are right now and, and make art for now. Um, and you can even uh, dust off something that you wrote a long time ago and say, hey, uh, is this up for a rewrite? Am I myself up for a reboot? <laughs> I'd like to think that every morning when I wake up, I'm Corey Edwards, the reboot. You know, just, just there's every day is a sequel, huh? So until the next sequel of this show, I'm Corey Edwards. Hey, thanks for stopping by.